Father, we love you. Father, we love your love. We love the fact that while we were weak, Christ died for us. Father, we thank you that the reason we're here today is because of your love. The reason we're here today is because of your cross. Lord God, and I pray that as we look at the passage today, as we look at... um, this sermon, as we look at this amazing um, passage from, from the Gospel of Mark, Lord God, I pray that our minds would be equipped, but I pray, Lord God, that our hearts would be drawn to you. I pray, Lord God, that your love would shine through today. As we look at the theme of the cross going through Jesus and his people, Lord God, I pray that our hearts would be ablaze with a love for you, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to see something of Jesus, help us to see something of the Gospel that we haven't seen today, that we'd be absolutely amazed at this incredible God that we worship. pray you'd come and fill us with your spirit. And I pray that you'd save people today, Lord. I pray, that, I pray that for people who don't know you, and I pray that for people who know you, I pray that every single one of us would feel saved today, Lord God. That we'd feel like we have got a glimpse of the amazing message of the cross, and of the amazing message of your determination to go through with it, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So today we're starting a new series. We're starting a series called The Road to Jerusalem in the lead up to Easter. Um, So it's only going to be, it's kind of a mini series, so it's only going to be a few weeks long. But what we're basically doing is looking at the time where Jesus in his ministry starts turning his attention towards Jerusalem and towards the fact that he's going to have to go to the cross. And today we're actually going to look at that particular point where Jesus kind of is doing loads of various things. And then suddenly turns his attention to the fact that he needs to go to Jerusalem and that he needs to be killed and then rise from the dead. And we're going to look at that point today and then over the next few weeks we're going to look at various people that Jesus encounters on the road to Jerusalem. And hopefully just seeing every single week that the cross is right at the centre of Jesus' mind. Jesus, it's like, if, I don't know, if you've ever put those glasses on where um, you've got a shape on them or something and you look through them and all you can see is everything's distorted by that shape. In a kind of way, it's like Jesus' vision has got a cross shape in front of it. He knows that's where he has to go. And from this point that we look in the, uh, in the gospel today, this is right at the front of his vision. In a way that, I suppose, when you read the gospels, you realise it, it hasn't been that prominent before, but suddenly now it's come right to the front. So we're going to look at that turning point today, and I've called the sermon The Christ, The Cross, and The Christian. And we'll see why that is. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, if you could open up to Mark chapter 8. And uh, whilst, you're, whilst you're turning there, Steph talked last week um, a little bit about the idea, well he gave a few bits of advice about, um, sorry it wasn't last week was it? The week before. He gave a few, a few pieces of advice about how to read the Bible and one of the things he mentioned was, why don't you have, the, have a go at reading a whole book in one go? And he, he gave the example of reading the Romans in one go because it's a letter. I would also encourage you, why don't you have a go this week, just put, a, put aside two hours and read the Gospel of Mark in one go. Because when you read the Gospels in one go, you realise they're not just isolated incidents about what Jesus done is, does in his life. The people who wrote these Gospels, under the inspiration of the Spirit, were putting together stories that communicate something. And Mark in particular... He's got, basically he's got a story which has a real twist right in the middle of it. We're going to look at that a little bit more later, but I'd encourage you, if you've got two hours spare at some point, or make two hours spare, if we think something's a priority, we'll, we'll generally make time for it, and have a go at reading the whole Gospel of Mark. Even if, if you're not a Christian here actually today, that's a, it's a good Gospel to read through. It's the shortest of all of them. It's probably the most action-packed of the lot, so I just in, encourage you to do that. But if you turn to Mark 8, we're going to read verses 27 to 38. I'm going to talk about the Christ, the cross, and the Christian. 
So verse 27, I think the words will come up on the screen. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his life? What can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I imagine there's a lot of maybe isolated statements in there that we're all very familiar with. Take up your cross and follow me. It's probably one of those catchphrases we're very familiar with. We're probably familiar with the idea of Peter turning to Jesus and saying, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. It's generally the the way we remember it. We're familiar with the idea of Jesus talking to Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan. What we may not always appreciate is all of them go together in the same story. And um, what they actually act as is a major turning point in the gospel. Um, Just as a side note, there's a reason the gospels are called gospels. It's it's blindingly obvious, but it hit me a few years ago, and I didn't realise I'd never seen it before. We often think, oh, what's the gospel? Well, there's a reason the gospels are called gospels. It's because they tell the story of the gospel. They tell the story of Jesus' life. And in this particular telling of Jesus' life, this chapter is a turning point. Because what Mark has done is he's got a load of information about Jesus' life, and he's thinking, right, God, help me to tell this story in a way that's going to connect with people and is going to help them. And so the way God has helped him to tell this story is he kicks off his gospel right at the start with Jesus being baptised and as Jesus is being baptised a voice from heaven comes and says you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased so the gospel kicks off with God acknowledging who Jesus is what you then get are eight chapters of basically Jesus doing incredible things of walking around teaching that the kingdom of God that is coming that God is coming back to reign as king he's healing the sick he's casting out demons he's doing miracles he's proclaiming good news good news and he's welcoming the outcast and those who are considered um, sinful by society and then suddenly in chapter 8 there's another confession that happens where Peter ends up confessing that Jesus is the Christ and we'll look at that in a bit and from this point onwards the whole narrative changes and suddenly it's like you've been going uphill to this point suddenly everything turns towards Jerusalem and within two chapters Jesus has entered Jerusalem and within a week after that he's hanging on a cross and dying And what Mark wants us to do is to read the first eight chapters, get to this point and think, that is weird for that to happen. And then suddenly have to rethink who we think Jesus actually is. Because suddenly everything you might have expected would happen when Jesus is casting out demons, healing the sick, proclaiming the kingdom of God, suddenly changes when you get to this chapter. And then what happens is when Jesus dies on the cross, a centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. You've got Jesus being 
told that he is the son of God at the beginning by God. You've got this turning point where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ or the son of God. And then at the end, a pagan, non-believing centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. And then a chapter later, Jesus is raised from the dead. The whole thing's kind of uphill, turns around and goes downhill. And we're going to look at that turning point um, in the passage. And we're going to do it in three chunks. So Mark wants us to rethink what... Um, what Jesus being the Christ means. And so we're going to look at the Christ, the cross, and the Christian. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to look at the Christ in verses 27 to 30, the cross in verses 31 to 33, and the Christian in verses 34 to 38. And what we're going to see is the theme of the cross runs both through the Christ and the Christian. Has anyone ever had a Brighton Rock before? Okay, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's a piece of candy, with hard-boiled candy, basically. It's, I, I think it's really hard to eat, gets sticky, gets in between your teeth, I don't really like it. But basically, there's a, a shape that runs all the way through. And wherever you break that particular piece of candy, that shape is going to be there. And it's the same with Christ and the Christian, or Christ and the church, Christ and those who follow him. There's a, a shape that runs through them, which we see in this particular chapter, and that shape is the shape of the cross. Not literally like a geometry of a cross, but there is something to do with the cross that runs through the Christ, who Jesus is, and the Christian. And we're going to look at that today. So we're going to first of all look at the Christ. So verses 27 to 30. Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi. Now at this point in his ministry, Jesus has been doing loads of amazing things, and he has gathered a group of disciples to him. And so Jesus, we can have, yeah, those, those are the verses we're looking at. And Jesus has gathered his disciples to him, and they've basically spent probably around about three years with him at this point. They've seen him casting out demons, they've seen him proclaiming the kingdom of God, they've seen him do loads of amazing things. And what happens is Jesus ends up going to the village in Israel, which is the furthest away from Jerusalem you could possibly be. It's as far north as you can go, and Jerusalem is in the south. And then he gathers his disciples and says, you've been with me for a few years, what are people saying about me? And it turns out that everyone's got some point of view about who Jesus is. So some people are saying he's a prophet, some people are saying that he's Elijah, some people um, are saying that he's John the Baptist again, because he's doing things that seem a little bit like John the Baptist did. It's the same nowadays, everyone seems to have a point of view on who Jesus is. I suppose the question to you today would be, who do you think Jesus is? I'm not asking that just to non-Christians, although I am. If you're here today and you don't follow Jesus, have a think, who do you think Jesus actually is? But actually, for those of us who are Christians as well, have, ask yourself afresh, who do you think Jesus is today? Because that question, everyone seems to have had a particular point of view on it. Although, interestingly enough, the disciples didn't say, some people are going around saying, you're just a nice moral teacher. You get that quite a lot nowadays. Jesus was clearly doing something that didn't just fit the mould of a nice moral teacher. Something more profound was going on. So he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they say all of these various things, and then he turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, kind of generally the loud one out of the lot, but at this point he gets it right. He says, you are the Christ. Now, Christ, we, we throw that word around a lot. We say Jesus Christ, um, we, we use it almost interchangeably with Jesus because we know that Jesus is the Christ. But what we might not understand is Christ is the same word in Greek as the word Messiah. So when you're talking about, oh, Messiah, that's exactly the same word as Christ, it's just in a different language. It's not Jesus' surname. That's, I don't know, some people seem to have that idea that actually Jesus was the son of Joseph and Mary Christ almost. It, it's, not, it's not his surname, it's a title. It means Messiah, or maybe what might help us to understand it more, because we're not Jewish in the main, would be king. 
The Messiah was, the, per- was, was the, the person who would be king over God's people and would set them free from their enemies. And Peter confesses, you are the Christ. You're the king. You're the one who was promised. And in fact, Peter would have had a particular idea about what the Messiah would have been like. Because the Jewish people, God's people, had been under foreign oppression for the last 500 years, at least. And at this point, they were under the oppression of the Romans. The Romans didn't particularly like the Jews. The Jews didn't particularly like the Romans. Things were not going too well. And I imagine Peter may have had the psalm that we're going to read, if you could put um, the psalm up, in his mind. Psalm number two, which talks about... A, a, king, a, a king of Israel who would reign over the nations. The king says this, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you or I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That I imagine is probably what Peter had in mind when he said you are the Christ. And that, to a nation that is under oppression, is pretty good news and pretty exciting. So when Peter says, you're the Christ, and we can tell from parallel accounts in the Gospels that Jesus basically is saying, yes, I am, that is incredibly good news. Because they think, brilliant, we are now talking to the person who's going to set us free from our enemies and set us free from oppression. It's incredibly exciting. If you were an oppressed people in, a, in, in another part of the world where you don't have freedom and you suddenly found out that the person who would set you free from those people was there, you would be very excited. But Jesus' response is not, he doesn't deny he's the Messiah, but he says in verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now that's a little bit weird in my point of view. If, if you've just told people, I am the coming king, the one who's going to set you free, and then you suddenly say, but don't tell anyone... That, doesn't that just strike you as a little bit odd? Of a thing to say? Has anyone ever read, in fact, Jesus does this a lot in the Gospels. Have you ever wondered why Jesus does that? And just kind of does an amazing thing and then says, don't tell anyone about it. The reason is probably a very practical one. Have you ever told anyone something and then said, but don't tell anyone else? Not because it's wrong, but because if you tell everyone else what I've just told you, they're all going to get the wrong message. That's probably, I, I, I desperately tried to think of an example, but it was actually really tough to think of one. But I think we've all done that, where we say to someone, here's what I'm going to do, just don't tell anyone. Not because what we're going to do is wrong, but because we don't want people to get the wrong idea. Now, if Messiah, for Peter, meant military king who's going to come in and destroy the Romans, then if he goes and tells everyone we've found the Messiah, guess what's going to happen? Revolution's going to happen, they're going to march on to Jerusalem, and within days, all of Jesus' followers will be hanging up on crosses. We know of quite a few people who claim to be the Messiah around the time of Jesus, and usually what they would do is gather an army, march, march to Jerusalem, the Romans would see them and think, this is trouble, they'd go out, they'd kill most of them and crucify a load of them. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that they haven't quite fully understood what it means to be the Messiah. And so he's telling them, don't tell anyone about me, because now what I'm going to do is explain that even though I'm the Christ, you need to have your picture of who the Christ is a little bit reconfigured, because otherwise you're, you, are, you, you think that I'm just here in order to get rid of the Romans. That's not what I'm about. There is going to be Psalm 2 stuff. The Psalm 2 is in the Bible, so it's not like we're suddenly saying, oh yeah, that's all wrong, Jesus just came and said, love your enemies. But something else is needed. And that thing is what we're now going to look at, which is the cross. So the cross in chapters, chapter, verses 31 to 33, Jesus says, and he begun to teach them that the Son of Man, it's referring to him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. 
Jesus, having just said to his disciples, essentially, I'm the Messiah, has now just done a huge, what seems like a U-turn, and says, and by the way, we're going to Jerusalem, because that's where the chief priests and the scribes are, and they're going to mistreat me, they're going to reject me, and I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, I don't think the disciples would have even got as far as hearing talk about Jesus rising from the dead, because they heard the words, I'm going to be killed. Now, that is a contradiction in terms. If you are a good, um, I, I don't know, a, a, a good devout Jew in the first century, and someone comes along and says, "I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to be crucified by the Romans," you would say you are absolutely off your rocker. That it's a contradiction in terms. You cannot have a crucified Messiah because the cross is the symbol of Roman victory. Which means if we have the king who's supposed to set us free from our enemies, who's suddenly being defeated by our enemies, that's a contradiction in terms. It's not going to happen. Which is exactly why I imagine Peter then says, um, Peter then takes him aside and begins, begins to rebuke him. It's completely understandable. Peter's not, I think we often look at the disciples and think, oh, what a bunch of idiots. Peter here, quite understandably, is saying, that's not going to happen to you. If you're the Christ, and we believe you are, we feel God's revealed that to us, you're not going to die. That can't happen. That's just not going to happen. It's not possible. At which point Jesus turns to him, and when he sees his disciples, rebukes Peter instead, and says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus is so keen to show that the cross and the Christ go hand in hand, that when he sees the other disciples looking at Peter rebuking him, he thinks, I need to let them know in very plain terms that what, they, that what their understanding of the Messiah is is incomplete. And so he rebukes them. He rebukes Peter in front of everyone. Which, it sounds pretty harsh. Get behind me, Satan. It's not, not the kind of thing that you would imagine would be said of one of the most prominent leaders in the early church. But Peter is rebuked by Jesus because Jesus is so passionate and so certain that the cross is right at the centre of everything he needs to do that he doesn't want his followers believing that that's not the case and so he rebukes them and says get behind me Satan the disciples didn't get it it's a little bit like um, if you have a small child and you have to take them to the dentist or to the, I don't know, they have to have an operation, surgery of some kind for a problem which doesn't particularly cause pain at the moment. You get that sometimes where you, just, you go for a routine checkup and the doctor says, okay, we're going to need to do surgery um, because if we don't, something bad's going to happen. Now that kid's going to go into hospital and the parents are telling the kid, oh, the doctor's going to make you better. When they come out of surgery, they are not thinking the doctor has made me better. They're saying, how on earth has the doctor made me better? There's no way this could this is painful i wasn't in pain before and now i'm in pain you told me the doctor was going to make me better it's not possible this is a lie i imagine the disciples had that kind of fairly short-sighted mentality because what they wanted is psalm 2 style stuff they wanted the the nations um, being dashed to pieces by the messiah and the romans getting rid of and jesus says no that is the ultimate aim you read revelation 19 the ultimate aim is that jesus will rule the nations But just as a doctor needs to sometimes perform painful surgery in order for something to be resolved, Jesus realised there was something else that was needed in order for him to be declared king over all the nations. And that thing was the cross. Because there's also a fairly similar-ish passage in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, which talks about the idea of God demonstrating his power to all the nations. It's in Isaiah 52. You can read it at some point if you want. He talks about the Lord has bared his power before the eyes of all of the nations and all the ends of the earth have seen the rescue of our God. Sounds kind of grandiose kind of language like we've just seen in Psalm 2. But immediately after Isaiah 52, 
There comes a well-known passage about not a conquering king, but a servant who has to be crushed and bruised for the transgressions of his people. Jesus realised that in the way of Psalm 2 material, in the way of him being exalted, exalted as king over all the nations, there was a litany of sin in the way that needed to be dealt with. See, Jesus knew Psalm 2, but he also knew Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 and realised that actually the conquering king would have to become the suffering servant if there is any way of him ever ruling over the nations. Because it's not a great idea for a king to rule over a nations and have no subject. If the cross was not gone through with, there would be no subjects for Jesus to reign over because every single person would be condemned as a sinner and just destroyed. Jesus knows that in order to become king and rule over his people, he must go through the cross, which sounds like a contradiction in terms to his disciples. And it probably sounded like a contradiction in terms until they saw him raised from the dead. And suddenly I imagine everything made sense. And Jesus took them through a Bible study, apparently, after he was raised. And I imagine he probably went through Isaiah 52 and 53. And suddenly the disciples went, oh, now I see. Jesus says, Don't you, didn't you realise that in order to enter into his glory, the Son of Man had to be rejected by men and killed? And this, I imagine the disciples, suddenly the lights went on and they thought, oh, we've been like the, the small children in the operation, not realising that actually sometimes there is pain that leads to the, the, end, the end goal. And so Jesus wants to, his, his followers to understand that the cross and the Christ, the Messiah, the King, and the cross go hand in hand. It's like the Brighton Rock. It flows all the way through. And that's the kind of thing we've been singing about. We've been singing about the amazing love of God that actually in order to redeem a people for himself, he would go to the cross. Amazing love, oh what sacrifice, the Son of God given for me. My debt he paid and my death he died that I might live. Heaven, uh, uh, no, you, the, cross sound, the cross is exceptionally painful. I don't think there's, a, there's not really a parallel. I, I, I'm trying to think of a, a, a way of execution in, a, in a, I suppose in a country of the world that would have capital punishment that we might know of, that in any way kind of almost would give the same kind of shuddering terror as the cross would. The electric chair and lethal injection don't come close. The cross was shameful, horrific, painful. It was the ultimate, most low and abased way of dying. But God sent his son, while we were yet sinners, to die on the cross. And Paul says in Romans, in Romans 5, he says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus saw his disciples, he saw the end goal of ruling over the nations and he said there's something in the way that needs to be dealt with. I am now going to turn my face towards Jerusalem. We are going there and in the next, um, three, in the next two chapters of Mark, twice again after this, he repeats to his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over into the hands of sinners and on the third day will rise. Jesus makes it emphatically clear, the cross is the destination. Jerusalem is the destination, but maybe not, but not in the way that the disciples would have expected the Messiah to come to Jerusalem. But the Christ is not the only person who goes hand in hand with the cross. The Christian also goes hand in hand with the cross. And we look in verses 34 to 37, so 38, Jesus calls the crowd together to his disciples and says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his life? And what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Jesus is saying it's not just my lenses that are cross-shaped. The lenses of all of God's people need to be cross-shaped. We need to be a cross-shaped people, a people whose lives are determined by the shape of the cross. Not that kind of shape, but actually the shape of lowering oneself, and, which is what happens at the cross, and afterwards being raised. Jesus dies at the cross to the most shameful kind of death and after is exalted, and the Christian life is actually exactly the same. Jesus wants a people who are cross-shaped, a people who follow after, his, after him. But actually, if you think about it, that's completely normal. If you have a, a movement leader, then you would expect the people to be, want to be becoming like the leader of the movement. So if what defines Jesus, and you read the book of Revelation, what defines Jesus for all eternity is the fact that he's the lamb that was slain, then surely that's the kind of thing that should define his people. It's just probably not the kind of thing that you would want to define a people. But we're going to look at, look at what that might mean. But it is, it is completely normal. If you've got a leader who is defined by something, then the followers are going to be defined by that as well. But actually this particular image would have been far more gruesome and far more real for the followers than even for us. I think we hear about the cross, we have a slight concept about the terror of it. And so we hear something like, if you would follow after me, you must take up your cross and, and basically walk after me with your cross. We may see that in a slightly pious way. When the original hearers would have heard that, they'd have known exactly what it meant to carry your cross. By the way, the Hollywood movies don't always get it completely right when it comes to crucifixion. They always, for some reason, always seem to depict Jesus carrying his cross and then the criminals who were crucified with him as just kind of appearing suddenly at Golgotha. When people were crucified, they carried the beam of their cross. That was a common image. And so when Jesus is saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. He's basically saying, you guys need to follow me to the execution squad. You need to pick up your cross, be ready to be crucified for me. It's like Jesus, but in, in, in a way that's even more intense, it's like, it's like saying, if you want to follow after me, you need to pick up your lethal injection. Or you need to pick up your electric chair. Maybe that brings it home a little bit more. He's basically saying, come and follow me and die. Carrying a cross isn't about, it's not about having, I don't know, a slightly bad day. It's often, I don't know, it's often thrown around like that. It's, oh, it's just my, it's my cross to carry. Carrying your cross and following Jesus means saying, I am going to die to my old self. And if necessary, I'm going to actually die. Because that's what it means to follow this person. If this person is leading me and they're going to their death, then I want to follow him and be like him. So it's heavy stuff, but what we'll see is there is encouragement for, the, for how we do that. But I want to hopefully just let Jesus' words sit a little bit with us, because they are hard. And they would have been hard, and perhaps sounded even harder to the first people who were hearing them, because they had that whole imagery with them. Jesus says, if anyone would save his life, he will lose it. It's completely upside down. If you try and save your life, generally you, you save it. And if you try and lose it, and if you lose your life, you lose it. But Jesus says, actually, it's the other way around when it comes to me. Because actually the way you save your life is by dying. Can, if, you, if you read the Gospels, when Jesus proclaims the kingdom, everything's upside down. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And you're like, that doesn't sound right. Blessed are those who are humble, who are self-effacing, because they're going to basically rule over the whole earth. That doesn't sound right. But the whole point is the kingdom's completely upside down. And so Jesus says, if you want to gain your life, then you lose your life. 
But if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospel, you will gain it. And that means that the 21 Egyptian Christians who were beheaded by ISIS recently have actually gained their lives. That horrific, horrific things that we see happening where Christians are killed for the gospel and killed for Christ, as much as we should mourn and grieve with them, we must also realise they have gained their lives through that. It's all upside down. But the thing is, death is the great leveller. You'll never find someone on their deathbed saying, please bring all of my possessions to me. At that point, they realise that actually what matters generally is the people you know at that point. Death levels everything. Whether you're great, small, whether you're rich or poor, everyone dies. And so Jesus says, what's the point of gaining the whole world but losing your life? What can someone give in exchange for their life? You can't give something in exchange for your life. You can't hold off death permanently. Death is coming, and at that point, what counts is whether you died to yourself and followed Jesus, or whether you tried to gain your life. There's heavy words, but what we see is the cross goes all the way through. The Christ and the Christian. Those who follow the crucified Christ live lives that are cross-centred. And... Obviously, that might mean, as we've seen with the example, um, the example of the 21 Egyptian Christians who were beheaded for the gospel, that might mean literally use, losing your life. But actually, every single aspect of our Christian life is cross-centered. It's not just when you have to go to the extreme penalty of actually paying, paying with your life. But actually, everything Christian is cross-shaped. If we could have up Philippians 2 on the, um, on the screen, that would be great. Paul writes to a church in Philippi, and he says this to them. You'll probably recognize um, quite a bit of this passage. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. But he emptied himself, made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amazing passage. Amazing hymn, like that, that there were books and books and books written about that one hymn that Paul has either written or included in his letter. But do you realise the reason that Paul includes that in his letter is in the first few verses? If we could have the first slide. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Paul includes this juggernaut of theology in order to say, guys, live lives that are cross-shaped. Live the kind of life like Jesus did. He was God, but he didn't hold on to that as a thing to be usurped. He became nothing and went to the lowest of the poss- that you could possibly go. And Paul's saying, guys, why don't you live lives like that? Why don't you live lives that are cross-shaped? Lives are actually, the way you talk is defined by humility. It's defined by basically saying, I consider this person that I'm talking to more significant than myself. Which means that I might not lash out in anger like I would have. 
Or it might mean that I am, this is uncomfortable, but I need to challenge this person on what they've just done. But because I'm living a cross-shaped life, I'm going to do that because actually I'm considering this person more significant than myself. Those of us who are GC leaders, for example, is the way you, is the way you think about leading a GC about considering others more significant than yourself or have we been slightly tainted by the world's view of what leadership is, which is a sense of actually I'm slightly above? Paul says, lead in a cross-centred way. In marriages, are marriages defined by the cross? Well, Paul says they should be. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Everything you do as a Christian, whether you're giving, does your giving, is your giving cross-centred? Is it saying, I'm considering others and I'm considering God more significant than myself, which means I'm going to lower myself and give money to the church and give money to the poor and see this person over here who's in need and I know that they haven't got enough money for rent this month, but I do. And saying, actually, I'm going to consider this person more significant than myself. So it might mean losing your life completely, but actually it will look like every single day making decisions that are cross-shaped and cross-centred. Does that make sense? So the cross runs through the whole thing. But now you might be sitting here thinking... Well, the losing your life sounds really scary, and actually just daily living in a way that's cross-centred sounds really challenging. So how on earth do you do that? Is it just like, I don't know, muscle up and figure it out and just go for it, just grit your teeth and live cross-centred lives? Well, actually, there's an encouraging truth that even though Jesus says, if you would come after me, deny yourself and and carry your cross, in other words, follow me to my death, the reality is that has actually happened to every single Christian. Paul says in Romans 6, Those of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Those of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus have died to ourselves. That's the amazing truth of the gospel, is that actually the life that we live that's cross-centred doesn't come out of us just gritting our teeth and saying, let's do it. It comes out of the fact that in the gospel, through trusting Jesus and through baptism, you have been buried with Christ already. And so as a result, although there's a daily dying that happens, it's not, it, it's not so that from this point onwards you just say, okay, well, everything's now really easy. The dying to self daily becomes possible. Something which was impossible before becomes possible. I mean, just what, what, what does it take to have a sword to your neck and say, I'm not going to deny Jesus? It takes a group of people who have been baptised into Christ's death and have been raised with him by the glory of the Father. So there is good news. It's a comforting thought that actually when Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me, those of us who have been baptised into Jesus have actually already denied ourselves. It's something we have done already, and because of that, God provides the power to be able to live lives that are cross-centred, that are self-giving, that are humble. And we are able, because of that, to boast in the cross. So when Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him, those of us who are in Christ actually are those who can boast in the cross and not be ashamed in the cross, which is completely supernatural. It is impossible to boast in the cross if you haven't had your eyes open to the glory of the gospel. It's just not possible. We, we follow a guy who was brutally killed. That's ridiculous if it's not actually powerful and effective. But those of us who have been baptised into Jesus, who have given our lives over to Jesus, actually can boast in the cross. Because although the rest of the world looks at the cross and says, that is ridiculous, that is utterly ridiculous, we can look at the cross and say, it looks ridiculous, but actually when we look at the cross, because God has given us new vision, we see the wisdom of God and the power of God in it. The Christ, 
the cross and the Christian all go hand in hand. And I just encourage you, if you're here today and you're a Christian, let's encourage one another to live Christ-centered lives because we're able to. It's not something, it's not like, I don't know, it's not like yell at each other and grab each other and push each other and say, come on, live Christ-centered lives. Let's encourage one another to do that because we can. And those of you here today who actually are not, are not Christians, you don't follow Jesus, but maybe as I've been preaching, you've actually, thought, you've actually been thinking, actually, I always used to see the cross as a really weird thing. But now I'm actually starting to see that there's something wise in it. It's, it's like suddenly my vision's been changing. And if that's you, I'd invite you to chat to the friends who brought you or come and see one of the elders or come and talk to me. And we would love to pray for you. We'd love to talk to you more about Jesus and about following him. But what we're going to do now is rather than finish by focusing on ourselves and, our, and the fact we need to leave cross-centered, we're going to focus on Jesus and the cross. So if the band can come up, we're going to sing a song in a minute called The Power of the Cross. And we're going to finish by focusing on Jesus. And I'm going to read, if the band could play in the background, what I'm going to do is read Isaiah 53, which is what I referred to earlier. And if we could just all stand, maybe, and those of us who want to, we can come and fill this place. But I'm going to read a, just a chapter, it's only about 12 verses, that focuses our mind on what Jesus had to go through in order for him to be able to reign over the nations. Isaiah says this about Jesus. Who would have believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the power of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has carried our griefs and carried our sorrows. But we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Every single one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. But he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who could have spoken of his descendants? Because he was cut off from the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death. Although he'd done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. But it was God's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be justified. And he will bear their iniquities. So I'm going to give him a portion with the many. And he will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his life to death and was numbered with the transgressors. But he bore the sin of many and he intercedes for transgressors. <laughs>
Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that Jesus saw through the lens of the cross. We thank you he knew what he needed to do. And we thank you he went to the end to do it. And we thank you that after the cross comes resurrection because the cross was powerful and you confirm that by raising him from the dead. And I pray as we sing now, Lord God, would you open our eyes more to that. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Father. And we pray you'd be with us now by your spirit. Amen.